your Bible with you tonight, let's open it to the second book in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. Tonight we launch off into our brand new series on the book of Exodus, 40 chapters. Uh, we're going to cover about one chapter per sermon, except for in certain sections. When we get to Exodus chapter 20, we'll have to do a sub-series on the Ten Commandments by itself. And then a couple other chapters we will have to break into parts. Uh, so we're starting, what, first Sunday in September 2020. By my estimation, we will be in this book at least until the end of 2021. And so uh, based upon the number of sermons that will come out of this and then the number of Sunday nights that we don't, uh, aren't in the regular study. And so we're looking at uh, possibly a year and three months, a year and six months in the book of Exodus. But I am telling you, it will be one of the richest, most enjoyable studies that we do as we go through this Old Testament book. It's amazing to me that we go back to a document that's over 3,000 years old. And as you will see tonight, there are principles that you can apply to your life today and that will help you with what you experience this week. And so with that in mind, we're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read the entire chapter of 22 verses. It says, Now these things, the, now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, let, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. So get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter and hard bondage, in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. And their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiprah, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? 
And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Let's pray. Lord, once again, it is our joy and our pleasure to come into your house with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to hear your voice through your word this evening. Father, as we launch off into the study of this second book of the Bible, I pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us to see these time-tested truths that you have passed down and preserved from generation to generation and that we would realize that the wisdom of this book cannot be improved upon with technology or advancement, but that truth is unchangeable. Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to cling dear to the unchanging truths of your word. Father, I pray and ask that you'll lead and guide me, help me to distill the spiritual principles from these texts that apply to our lives today. God, help me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you think about the first five books of the Bible, you need to understand that it is one book. It is referred to in the Bible as the book of the law or the book of Moses. And what we have are five installments of one book that was written and edited by the man Moses. In fact, you see that with the very first word in this book, it is now. Now these, that's a continuation, that is connecting us to the end of Genesis. And you'll find that same word starting off uh, in Leviticus and Numbers, and then, uh, and then Deuteronomy starts with and, at least when the text begins there. And so each one of those books is a continuation of the story of the people of Israel. Uh, someone has uh, made a little, little outline of those five books to kind of help you remember the big movements of it, and I thought it was neat uh, in my reading this week, so I'll pass it on to you. Genesis is the way down because it records the fall of man. Uh, Exodus is the way out because of the deliverance. Uh, Leviticus is the way in because it prescribes the way into the presence of God. Numbers is the way through as they are going through the wilderness. And Deuteronomy is the way forward as they are moving forward from there. And so when you see it in its context as a whole and you realize this is one installment in the narrative of the people of Israel, it is helpful for us to see that this is a sequel to Genesis as it begins with that conjunction now, and uh, it leads to the story. It connects us in those first few verses, reminding us that the people of Israel went down into Egypt. They are no longer in Canaan land. They are no longer in that land that God had promised to Abraham, but God directed them down into Egypt. The entire clan went down, about 70 people, and that they lived there and that the patriarchs died off there. The name of the book, Exodus, is a name that was given to it after the fact. It's actually Greek in its origins and etymology. And so later on, as they were naming the books and dividing them up, uh, they gave this book the name of Exodus because it means exit or departure. And that becomes the main theme of the book of Exodus. If you remember, God led Jacob and his sons down into the land of Egypt 
And little did they know at that time, but from our vantage point, it is like an incubator. And this infant nation is brought into the womb of this established nation of Egypt where they are protected and they are supported and they have an infrastructure by which they can live and grow. But almost immediately, the content of the chapter turns to affliction from there. Let's talk about the growth first that they experience as a nation of people. They have grown from one couple in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah, to 70 people in Genesis 50 over a period of about 200 years. Of course, lifespans were leaning to be a bit longer at that time. Jacob lived to be 147 years. And so over that first 200 years, it goes from two people. And as you remember, they had one heir, uh, Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons and Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And so over that 50 or that 200 year period, we have it growing from 70 to around, uh, from two to around 70. Over the next 200 years or so, they grow from 70 people to over 2 million people. It is, it is incredible growth that takes place here. And, uh, and for me, uh, I, I want to ask, how is that possible? One of the things that frustrated me as a kid growing up in church is when the preacher would make a statement that everybody in the room seemed to agree with, but he never explained why it was so. Right, And so that just, in my mind, that frustrated me. I wanted to know why it was so. Now, it's not that I doubt what that preacher said. I just want to know how he arrived at that. And so, and so when I tell you these, this group of 70 at the end of Genesis goes to two plus million, I'm going to answer for you how they got there. How did they grow from 70 to, to two million? Well, think about it this way. It is, it is exponential numbers. I don't know if you've ever heard that old uh, hypothesis set to you. Well, well would you rather have a million dollars or would you rather have a penny, uh, start off with a penny and double the amount every day for a month? And when you start doing the exponential math, what you find is that if you took a penny and you doubled it and then doubled the total every day, that within one month, within 30 days, you'd have over $5 million dollars. Well, population works the same way, that it is exponential. And with each generation, you have this doubling effect that takes place. For instance, for instance, when we look at the world's population, in 1800, there were 1 billion people on planet Earth. 1800, there were 1 billion people on planet Earth. 1900, 100 years, it increases to 1.6 billion people and then in the next 60 years from 1900 to 1960 it goes from 1.6 billion to 3 billion and so all of a sudden we find that it's making bigger jumps in a shorter amount of time well you go from 1960 with 3 billion to 1980 you have 4.5 billion you go from 1980 with 4.5 billion to the year 2000 and you're over 6 billion people and from the year 2000 until today, 2020, now we have jumped to 7.8 billion people. 
So notice how in the beginning it increased slower, only 0.6 billion over 100 years. And now we have 1.8 billion in 20 years. That's how population grows. And that's how the people of Israel went from 70 in the end of the book of Genesis. And over the next 215 years, they grow to 2 plus million people. Not only do we just do population figures... But we also examine what the scriptural evidence is. So if you would, look forward with me to the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers, chapter 1. I'll show you two things here. The first is that it's a continuation of the same story because the book of Numbers actually begins with the conjunction and. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation on the first day of the second month in the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt. So it's the beginning of the second year. So that means they've been out of Egypt for a little over a year, about 14 months. And God says to them in verse 2, Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel after their families, by the house of their fathers, with the number of their names, every male by their poles, from twenty years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. So one year into the Exodus, God tells Moses, I want you to count the people. But notice the criteria for the census. He doesn't say count everybody. He says count only the males. And so this, is, this number we're going to see is only the males. But not only is it not just only the males, it is only the males who are 20 years old and over. But it's not just all males 20 years old and older. It's all males 20 years old and older who are able to go to war. So it has a cutoff date Somewhere down the line. It doesn't tell us exactly where that cutoff date is for the age of men to go to war. But there would have been a senior men's class that's not counted in this census. Are you tracking with me? All right. Drop down to verses 45 and 46 and we'll get the total for the men who are 20 years old and older who are able to go to war. And so if I were going to ballpark it, I would say this is men from the age 20 to somewhere between 50 and 60. The closer I get to 50, the less I idealize going to war. So, Numbers chapter 1, verse 45, So were all those that were numbered of the children of Israel by the house of their fathers from 20 years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war in Israel... Verse 46, even all they that were numbered were 600,000 and 3,550. So the total number of males 20 years old and upward able to go to war was 603,050. 603,550 is the total number that we have there. So... Let's do some other evident math that is here. That's only the males, 20 years old and older. So if we were to add one female and one child to that count for every male, we all of a sudden triple our number from 603,000 to 1.8 million people. 
1,810,650. Is that plausible? That's very plausible. If there was a woman for every male that age, and if there was a child, someone male or female, under uh, the age of 20. And that is not counting multiple children. And when we look historically, most of those families did, had, did not have just one child. They would have had multiple children. Moses comes from a family of three, right? He had a sister and a brother. So there's three there. And so if we factor in multiple children and senior citizens, both male and female, uh, one more child added into the mix takes it to 2.4 million. So, in reality, the total number was probably around 3 million people. That's why in Exodus chapter 1, the Pharaoh who arises says, They are more and mightier than us. They are multiplied. And so the very first thing that we learn coming into the book of Exodus is that this nation is growing. This nation is growing. And then we also learn about affliction. The book of Exodus has for its main theme deliverance and redemption. The main theme of the book of Exodus is deliverance and redemption. Genesis, its origins, it's the book of beginnings. Exodus is deliverance and redemption. In fact, I, I would indicate to you that one of the key verses of the book is Exodus fifteen thirteen that says, Thou in thy mercy hath led us forth the people which thou hast redeemed, Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. You say, why are you jumping to the redemption? Well, I'm jumping to it because it's the main theme, but I'm also jumping to it because a prerequisite for deliverance is enslavement. A prerequisite for deliverance is enslavement. How could Exodus be the book of deliverance if there were not a people in need of being delivered? And that is where we find the Jewish people in Exodus. They were brought down into Egypt as guests, honored guests. They were giving one of the most fertile pieces of land in Goshen where they could raise their herds and their cattle. Joseph, who uh, stood as the patriarch of that family, was prime minister of the nation of Egypt. He was honored by Pharaoh, and so were all of Joseph's people. But Exodus soon tells us that Joseph died, and so did that entire generation, and there rises a Pharaoh who knows nothing about that, and now, instead of treating them as guests, now they are slaves. Now they are servants. Now they are in servitude. But this affliction does not just set the stage for the future redemption. It is actually a catalyst for present growth. And so as we read about this affliction that is taking place, as we notice that they afflicted them, they set taskmasters over them, they afflicted them more and more, they made them serve with rigor, they made their lives bitter and hard with bondage, uh, they made it difficult on them. That affliction was not just setting the stage so that God could send in a leader who would redeem them, but it was actually part of their growth and that's what I want us to see the connection between tonight in this opening chapter of Exodus is the connection between affliction and growth the human nature does not like affliction we do not like 
hardship. We are repelled from that. We resist that. We pray for deliverance from that. I mean, we like it easy. Now, we all like to brag about how hard we had it. Amen. But we don't actually like having it hard, right? We, we like having an easier life. I mean, I am thankful that we don't have an outhouse that we have to leave our big house at night to go to the restroom outdoors somewhere. I'm thankful for that, right? But now I've sat around many a table and heard people talk about the old days and how, how rough they had it and how good we had it and how hard life was because they had that sort of thing. I understand we like to talk about how difficult it was, but human nature does not like that. We all enjoy the luxuries of life. And while there's nothing wrong with that when it comes to our quality of life and the amenities that we have in our home, we dare not allow that to shape the way that we view those hardships as it pertains to our spiritual life. Because the fact is, you'll never live a life that is free of affliction. You'll never live a life that is free of difficulties and hardships. But instead of simply enduring those and praying for them to be over and viewing them as a blight and a burden, we need to understand that God has a master plan going on and that He can actually use that source of affliction as a catalyst for spiritual growth in our own lives. As I think about this connection between growth and affliction, I, I'm simply reminded of the sovereignty of God and how that the Jewish people should not have been caught off guard by this because God actually prophesied it to their patriarch, Abram, in Genesis chapter 15. And so if you would look back, hold your place in Exodus 1, but look back to Genesis 15. God calls Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, Abraham sets out on his journey of faith. He enters into the promised land. God uh, renews the covenant, extends the covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15 and gives him more detail about the future of what's going to happen. And in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, it says, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety, without a doubt, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall, look at this next word, afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance." When we read that, all of a sudden something connects in our brain that says, well, wait a minute, that's exactly what they're in in Exodus chapter 1. They are being afflicted in a strange land where they're serving. And you and I know the rest of the story. They are delivered from that place of affliction and from that land of bondage with great substance. And so are they there for a period of time? Yes. Are they afflicted for a period of time? Yes. But does God have a plan? Yes. And does it involve growth? Yes. The nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob grow numerically in their number they grow spiritually in their faith and they grow financially as they spoil the country of Egypt when God delivers them out of it and so I'm telling you there is a divine theme as we enter into the book of Exodus that God wants us to see and that is 
affliction and growth or growth through affliction. And so with the sage stage set, I just want to give you six principles tonight from Exodus chapter 1 about growth through affliction. Number one, being God's people does not exempt you from affliction. Being God's people does not exempt you from affliction. Were these God's people? Yes, they were the direct descendants of Abraham. They can trace their lineage. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, and now the 12 tribes of Jacob. They are the people of God. But that does not exempt them from affliction. You and I have to be aware that we live in a day and time when there is a theology that is aberrant and it is wrong-headed, but yet it is popular and it is called the health and wealth prosperity gospel. And it is that preaching that is popular on TV that says, hey, if you trust God, if you believe God, if you make sacrifices for God, if you will send your seed money, God will bless you. God will heal you. God will take away your afflictions. Let me tell you something. It might sound good on TV, but it doesn't come out of the Bible. Being God's people does not exempt us from affliction. In fact, God prophesied to Abraham in Genesis 15 that you are going to be afflicted. That is part of his plan. That's why Peter had to write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you. Hey, look. You and I have to get over thinking that simply because we're God's blessed children that we won't suffer any hardship or affliction. I firmly believe that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more difficult it will be to be faithful to Christ. That's why there will be an apostasy. That's why there will be a falling away. That's why the church at Laodicea makes God sick because it's lukewarm in its commitment to God. And so you and I may be living in that generation that experiences a new affliction that hasn't been experienced in the past few centuries. And so remember, being God's people doesn't exempt you from affliction. Number two, being in God's will does not guarantee perpetual peace and prosperity. Being in God's will does not guarantee perpetual peace and prosperity. I have no doubt that the people of Israel were in God's will. It was God's will expressly told to Jacob, go down. Fear not, Jacob, go down into Egypt. Take your people down into Egypt. They are in Egypt because God sent them there, not because they took their own detour. They're in Egypt because in the sovereignty of God, God planned for them to be in Egypt for those hundreds of years and to be afflicted. They are right in the middle of God's will. And yet, they are not experiencing peace and prosperity. Instead, they are experiencing affliction. They have taskmasters who are lording over them. Their children's lives are being threatened and at risk of infanticide. They are not experiencing peace and prosperity, yet they are right in the middle of God's will. And so this 
more refined theology that we have is that we don't believe in the health and wealth gospel that you just sign up and you start getting all the blessings. But we do tend to think that if we are doing exactly what God wants us to do, then he's going to shield us from the bad things in life. There's been more than one Christian who prayed and said, God, didn't I give you everything? God, didn't I surrender my life to you? God, didn't I answer your call to ministry? God, didn't I serve you faithfully in this area and that area? Why are you letting this happen to me? And we need to realize that being in the will of God does not guarantee that we'll have perpetual peace and prosperity. In fact, the exact opposite is guaranteed in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, you know my manner of life, my doctrine, my teaching, my long-suffering. And then he goes on and he says this, you are aware of my persecutions, my afflictions. And then he says this in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so... We need to realize that we can be right in the center of God's will and still experience affliction. And that just because there is difficulty or hardship that is coming into our life does not mean that we are outside of the will of God. Because God never promised that to us. The third principle. The ungodly will tolerate you until they see you as a threat to their way of life. The ungodly will tolerate you until they see you as a threat to their way of life. In Exodus chapter 1, the people of Israel are tolerated for a long time, a couple of hundred years. But then all of a sudden, there's a Pharaoh who says, you know what, there's more of them than there are of us. And they could actually threaten our way of life if we were attacked, which Egypt did go through a war around that time historically. If we are attacked and the enemies invade, the people of Israel, the Jews, could actually partner up with the enemy and make a way for themselves to escape. And when Egypt realized that Israel was a threat to their way of life, they would tolerate them no more. And you know what I think that we're living in? Here's, here's my pastoral talk for you this evening. This is not in Exodus We're getting to the place where the ungodly people in the United States and in the world feel threatened. Their way of life feels threatened by Christians, by God's people. And they'll tolerate us, and they have tolerated us up to a point. But there will come a day in our world and in our country when they say we won't tolerate it anymore. Now, we don't have time, and I'm not going to review all the news headlines that have come our way. But it is easy to look back over the landscape and to realize that, that our country shows more favor to Islamic Muslims than it shows to traditional Christians. I'm just telling you, that's one of the signs of the times and that the ungodly will tolerate you until they see you as a threat to their way of life. You see, our belief system threatens the new morality. This old ideology that we have about marriage being between a man and a woman, 
That threatens sin. This old ideology that we have from the Bible that your gender is determined by God before you are born, by your DNA makeup, that threatens them. This ideology that we have that an infant is a life in the womb and that it should not be murdered and aborted there, that is a threat to them. This ideology that we ought to govern by principle and by truth, that is a threat to them. And so just like the people of Israel were seen as a threat to the Egyptians, God's people will be seen as a threat to this world, even though this was never the intention of the Jews in Egypt. There's no indication that the Jews ever made any insinuations, never made any threats. That was never their intention. And you know what? It's not our intention to threaten the way of life for the non-believers. It's our goal to witness to them and try to win them to the Lord. But it's not our intention to threaten their way of life. Yet that doesn't matter. Just because the Jews did not have hostility toward the Egyptians, it didn't stop the Egyptians from having hostility toward them. We find this pattern repeated throughout the New Testament. Think about it through the book of Acts, and we won't take the time to go to each of these passages, but in Acts chapter 4, when the church explodes on the scene, and it is growing, and it's reaching people, what happens? The apostles get called into the council, and they get threatened. Don't speak in this man's name anymore. And then they are eventually ran out of Jerusalem. In Acts 17, when the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel in Thessalonica and people are getting saved, the leadership of that community rises up and runs them out of town. And then in Acts 19, when he is in Ephesus and the church begins to grow there and it's a threat to, uh, to the silversmiths who are making images of Diana, uh, they have a town meeting and they run them out of there. And we see it again in Corinth, the exact same thing and so if God showed us that pattern in Exodus and he showed us that pattern in Acts we would be foolish to think that that's not going to be lived out in our own lives principle number four growth can precipitate affliction growth can precipitate affliction the indication is that the affliction came because of the growth Look back at the verses, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. That's all growth. Verse 9, and he said unto his people, Behold, this people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. That's growth. Verse 10, come on, let us deal wisely with them lest they multiply. That's growth. Now watch the affliction. Verse 11, Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. Verse 12, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Verse 13, The Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. Verse 14, They made their lives bitter with hard bondage. End of verse 14, Made them serve with rigor. You see, it was the growth that brought about the affliction in the beginning. And the same is true for you and I. If the churches begin to grow, that's going to precipitate affliction. But I also believe that the same is true individually. I believe 
that as individual Christians begin to grow spiritually, that the enemy of God, Satan, is going to try and bring hardship into the individual's life to afflict them to try and squash the growth. Let's think about a couple of scriptural examples. How about Job? In Job 1.8, God said, The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? God said that twice to Satan. And when he says Job is a perfect man, it is not perfect in the modern sense of the word that's without flaw. It is perfect in the archaic sense of the word that means fully developed or matured. And so he says, hey, have you considered my mature servant Job, my, my grown-up servant Job? And what happens? Satan says, well, does he serve you for nothing? Let me afflict him, and we'll see if he still serves you. You see, because there is this battle going on between good and evil in our world. There's this battle going on between God and Satan, and you and I are the battleground. And as we grow spiritually, Satan is not going to let that pass by. He is going to try to bring affliction into our lives to press down the growth and to sabotage the glory that God gets. Another scriptural example I'm reminded of is in Luke 22 when Jesus speaks to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you to sift you as wheat. Why did Satan desire to have Peter to sift him as wheat? Because Peter had grown spiritually from where God called him, where Jesus called him, to where he was today. He made that great pronouncement in Matthew 16 that Jesus was the son of the living God. He was a chief spokesman spokesman for the disciples and because of his spiritual growth Satan desired to have him so that he could shake him out and sift him like wheat so that he could afflict him well if that's Satan's pattern do you not think that it might show up in our lives have you ever seen that when you're trying to make progress for the Lord when you have surrendered to the Lord you've stepped up to serve him you're trying to live the Christian life in a way that you've never lived it before and all of a sudden you feel like you get more things thrown against you and brought against you than you ever did before how do you explain that growth can precipitate affliction number five on the other side of the coin affliction can produce growth Affliction can produce growth. While growth might invite affliction into your life from the enemy, in God's economy, affliction can actually produce growth in our life. Hey, good news, it serves a purpose. That hardship, that difficulty that you face, it's not for nothing God didn't allow this to happen for nothing. He didn't allow the children of Israel to be afflicted for nothing. He didn't allow them to serve for nothing. He didn't allow them to be servants and slaves for nothing. He was actually producing growth. And did you notice the more they afflicted them, the more that they grew and multiplied. Psalm 119.67, the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now... I have kept thy word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, after I was afflicted, I kept thy word. He goes on to say a few verses later, It is good for me that I have been afflicted. 
that I might learn thy statutes. I really believe that's the posture that every Christian ought to have. Not that we are sadomasochists and trying to invite affliction into our lives. But we do need to understand that affliction can be good. That God can use that in our lives to take us to a deeper walk with Him. To love His Word more and more than ever before. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He, he said, lest he be exalted above measure for the multitude of revelation that had been given to him. He had a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan that buffeted him or beat him, afflicted him every single day. And at first he prayed and he sought the Lord and he asked God to remove it from him. And he did that three different times. And instead of God removing the affliction, God said, look, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul goes on to say, well, then I will rejoice in my afflictions and my persecutions because when I am weak, then am I strong. That through that affliction, God showed me my weakness. He reduced me down to the reality of what I am as a human being. And that is helpless. And it was at that place that I was open to the power of God in my life. You want to know what the problem is with most Christians? We're too strong. We're too strong. It's that old pride of life thing that we talked about this morning. We're self-sufficient. We will just tighten, clench our teeth, set our jaw, furrow our brow, put our head down and our shoulder into it, and we will press on. And man, it looks good on a movie screen, doesn't it? But it looks terrible in your spiritual life. The key to the power of God in our life, the key to growth, is when we realize just how weak we are. And nothing does that like affliction. And I have no doubt that there are people in this room who have suffered the affliction of disease who could stand and give a much more powerful testimony than anything I could say. It would say, it's true. When God brought me to my weakness, when he brought me to the place where I realized I'm absolutely helpless, that's when I really turned to him for my strength. The sixth principle the final principle tonight is God has grace and allies in our times of affliction. God has grace and allies in our times of affliction. While God will use grace and while God, or while God will use affliction and while God will send affliction into our lives and while sometimes he will unharness Satan himself and allow him to afflict us like he did Job and like he did Paul, God never removes his grace from our life and he never leaves us alone i love this when pharaoh realized that servitude wasn't doing it affliction wasn't doing it making them serve with rigor wasn't doing it it wasn't slowing the growth of this people of israel then he called in the midwives and he told them to kill the male babies Kill that child. Don't allow it to live. But Exodus 117, the, but the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. 
And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men's children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. God has grace and allies in our times of affliction. God always has people on his side to help you in the time of your affliction. Just like those midwives, God had them strategically placed there to help the people of Israel, the Hebrews, during their affliction. One of the things that Satan will lie to you and I about in the midst of our affliction is that we are all alone. You are in this by yourself. There's nobody that cares about you. There's nobody that's calling on you. There's nobody that's praying for you. There's nobody that cares for you. And I'm telling you, that's an absolute lie. While you may feel like that's where you are, I know based upon the character of God that he never leaves you and I without an ally. I'm reminded of the example of the prophet, uh, uh, prophet Elijah who thought that he was the only one who had not kowtowed to Baal. After his mighty spiritual battle with those 400 prophets of Baal and that threat that came in from Jezebel that she was going to have his head, he sat down and he said, Lord, just let me die. I'm the only cowboy that's left out here on this plane. And God reminded him, I have 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. I have allies that you don't even realize. God informed him that he had over 7,000 who had not bowed the knee. Not to mention the widow who God arranged to harbor and feed Elijah while he was a fugitive from King Ahab. She was an ally that God gave. Remember, you might be afflicted. You might be afflicted. You might be going through the most difficult thing in your life, but you are not alone. And I don't know what the future holds in store. As I read prophecy and I watch the headlines and I see what's going on in our world, I really believe that the midnight hour is near. And if it is, then things are going to get harder for God's people. It's going to be harder to serve the Lord. It's going to be more difficult. It's going to be more challenging. There will be measures that are brought out against the churches that try to leverage us into compliance. Now, for instance, and I'm not getting into the whole coronavirus debate, but just for instance, right now in California, churches are not allowed to meet indoors and they're not allowed to sing. And there are churches that have been taken to court. There are churches that have been threatened to be closed down. There are churches that are being fined $5,000 every time they meet together and have a service and they sing God's praises. There's a church in California that's had a 45-year contract on a city parking lot that when the, on a county parking lot in Los Angeles County. And when Los Angeles County could not get them to shut down, they pulled their contract and won't allow them to use that parking lot anymore to park in. Now, if you believe the Bible... And you take that as your sole authority, you say, I believe that the church is supposed to gather. It's its very nature. It's an ecclesia. It's a called-out assembly. 
and that the church worship is, worships together, and part of that is singing, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. If I'm going to be obedient to God's word, I'm going to have to defy the local government ordinance in California. And that's just one area where pressure is being applied, but it won't be long, folks, to win the LBGTQ plus revolution gains more momentum to where it is no longer legal for a person to even stand up and open up a Bible and denounce that as being a sinful lifestyle. And when those faithful preachers who do that are brought under the microscope, then the first thing that will happen is that the church will lose its tax-exempt status. All right, if you're not going to comply to these Title IX type ordinances, then we're going to remove that privilege of tax exemption that we've given to you. It's no longer going to be a charitable contribution when people give to your organization, and you're going to have to pay the full amount of tax. That'll be step one, I believe, in the United States of America. And I think that there will be more steps that follow that. And so I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom. Far from it. I'm just telling you, I'm encouraged by Exodus chapter 1 because when the affliction comes, it is also a tool of God's growth. And it is no indicator that He has abandoned us. The exact opposite, it is that He is allied with us. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, who lived in the 2nd and 3rd centuries during a time of great persecution among Christians under the Roman Empire, famously made this statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, I have no desire for any Christian to suffer. I really can't help but wonder if maybe affliction isn't what the 21st century church needs to get back to doing what God called it to do. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the sobering message that we receive that we are not exempt from affliction, but that affliction does not exempt us from your grace. Father, I pray and ask that if we are afflicted and that if affliction does uh, begin to increase in our lifetime, in our generation, Lord, I pray that it would produce the same type of growth that it produced in your people of old. And that, that the affliction as it comes would just cause us to multiply and grow and become stronger and mightier for your glory and for your honor. Give your people strength, I pray, that they need for this hour. I pray for those churches like our brothers and sisters who are on the front line in California. Give them the strength to stand, I pray, Lord, in spite of the affliction that comes. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand with me and let's sing number 